Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Before he received the Tony Honor for Excellence in the Theater, and before he was the executive director of Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, before he saved thousands and thousands of lives with his advocacy and tenacity, he was a simple cater waiter and dinner theater performer with a dream. (laughs) With a dream. And that dream to be on stage has morphed into an even bigger role off stage, where he is known for being the driving force behind Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, which is one of the nation's leading industry-based HIV AIDS fundraising and grant-making organizations, and has implemented such fundraising drives that they are now so deeply embedded into the fabric of Broadway. Things like Broadway Backwards, uh, Broadway Bears, Broadway Flea Market and Grand Auction, Easter Bonnet Competition, and the Great Red Bucket Follies, to name just a few. To tell us what it was like to be on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic and how he set a global example on how the entertainment industry could be a driving force to help victims when their government would not be there, here is the brilliant executive director of Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, Mr. Tom Viola. Tom, how are you today? Good, Rob. How are you? Hello, Kevin. Hey. We are so... Nice to hear and see you both. Yeah, it's, it's nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. Now, now, Tom, I have to ask, I was reading an interview that you gave, and it sounds like you and I suffered from the same, you know, condition, which is nobody really was looking for bald juveniles. There you uh, go. Or, 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 <laughs> in in so the much. world. Not so but much. It would, be a, it would be a very specific story if that were yeah. the case. <laughs> it would, yes, indeed. So, so, Tom, where did you grow up, and how did you first discover the love of the arts? Huh. Um, I grew up, I was raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I lived in a 60s suburb, very typical 60s suburb of Pittsburgh called mm-hmm. Bethel Park, actually, which is south of Pittsburgh. Uh, went to Catholic school for eight years, went to the public high school. My family, my parents and sisters, we all moved up to a small town, actually north of Pittsburgh called Zelianople. And what's kind, of, what's yes. kind of funny about that is if you watched The Prom, um, Ryan Murphy's The Prom just recently, yeah. there is a line that just about threw me out of my chair where Meryl Streep's character says she's from Zillianople, Pennsylvania. And I went, <laughs> oh, my God, 
what so writer dug that out or is from Pittsburgh somewhere and went, what's the craziest city name that I can come up with? <laughs> and Zelianople would be it. There anyway, it is. Um, so that was sort of my, my beginnings. You know, I, I didn't really, I can remember going to a performance uh, at Bethel Park High School when I must have maybe been like in seventh or eighth grade. Of, I'll bet it was some college production of some, as I remember in my head, some very costumed Elizabethan dance thing that I had no idea what was going on. But I, I remember, I clearly remember it and liked it, liked sort of seeing it and the energy. Um, then in high school, like everybody else, I, from that I got, you know, I was in the concert choir and, you know, began to do the musicals. They did musicals there, Music Man, My Fair Lady, things like that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, did the same when we moved north and I graduated from Seneca Valley High School. Um, somewhere in there, and I had um, a music teacher, uh, Karen Doherty, who I, had cast me as El Gallo in that year's um, production of The Fantastics and um, kind of got the idea that I wanted, I really enjoyed, you know, we did some other things in you know, the Thespian Society. I remember something, Adaptation Next, I forget other things. Um, but that kind of got me in the idea that I enjoyed doing this. I really liked um, being in that theatrical family, you know, all the energy, all the backstage excitement, you know, everything that happened after school, the evening performing, it gave, it gave me a, you know, a, a community, a family, um, a center, which, you know, if you want to jump ahead then 50 years or you know, nearly 40 some years is exactly what I kind of have now. Um, and the sense of that, the seeds of that clearly were planted then. Um, I then went on to um, CCM, the College Conservatory of Music in Cincinnati, where I was a musical theater major. Um, I had been accepted at Indiana University in Pennsylvania, not Indiana at Bloomington, a small like teacher's college, where I thought with my ability to play the piano a little bit and sing that I was going to somehow be a music and a history teacher. Um, <laughs> that might have been a disaster. I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know. That, but... <laughs> Through that teacher I mentioned, Karen Doherty, she convinced me she had a book that I should send a tape for this musical theater program at CCM, which she helped me do. Um, you know, like two monologues, sang some things. I forget what else. I had to write some essay or something. And I sent it off, kind of forgot about it. And the return address I gave was the high, was her at the high school. Um, I mean, the ironic thing about that is, you know, I was probably 17 years old. She was probably 23. Um, you know, so, I mean, she was a kid herself. Yeah. So we're doing this and um, I got accepted. <laughs> uh, I, I probably would never Great. be accepted now. I mean, certainly not through that process, but I did. And I remember having to have the conversation with my parents, I don't know, sometime on like April that, oh, by the way, this came in the letter and I, I, I really, I'd like, I really want to do that. Um, and I have to say, to their sort of amazing credit, and particularly having no background in any of this, it's not like these were folks who had been actors or in the theater. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. no background. They said, okay, we can, we can make yep. that happen. Um, so the next thing I knew, and next that following fall, there I was at CCM in Cincinnati meeting folks, many of whom are still very close and good friends today. And that really sort of was the first step on the road that led to who I am right now. I love yeah. Tom, what, what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> 
My folks, my dad worked for AT&T. I mean, he literally had stopped, started when he was like, you know, he didn't go, go, to, go to college after high school. He was a pole climber and literally, and then worked his way up to some upper middle management job managing a microwave tower outside of Pittsburgh. And my mother was a homemaker and, you know, um, bridge player. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, and and raised me and my three sisters in this very sort of typical suburban community. Okay, yeah. so, so then when you're done with school, do you go right to New York and start? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for sure. I mean, I mean, basically, once I went to school, I mean, kind of all bets were off. I mean, I mean yeah. not to throw any shade at my family, but literally when I left. Uh, you know, for school, I remember my dad drove me. When, but when we pulled out of that driveway, I don't know that I ever really came back home for more than a couple of days in a row. Um, I mean, it's odd. I, I was explaining to a friend of mine the other night when we moved for what were my junior and senior year. I sent, I, so I essentially spent only two years in that house that the rest of my sister, you know, so I don't have a real intense attachment to all yeah. of that or that place, even though I have friends from there, certainly still. But, um, you know, I, I went to school. Um, I was, you know, fascinated with the idea of New York City and Broadway. I mean, particularly New York City. I can remember when my dad, I haven't thought of this in ever, forever, my dad went to New York a couple times for some conventions having to do with his work, you know, probably staying at the, you know, the, the Americana or you know, yeah, someplace yeah. like that and yeah, doing God knows what. And um, he would send us postcards back or, you know, me and my sisters. Or, and I remember... The postcards. And I remember, I don't think he went to shows. I mean, I don't remember him ever bringing a playbill back, but I remember sort of getting a sense of this city, this place. When I was 16 years old, literally the summer between my junior and senior year in that new school, you know, that new school, there'd been a friend of mine at the Catholic school, St. Thomas More, where I'd gone to grade school, who we'd remain pals, and he now lived in Connecticut. And somehow we were talking to each other and our, their, our parents got talking to each other. And his father was driving from Pittsburgh back to Connecticut. So next thing I knew, I got permission. And again, this speaks to my parents not being helicopter parents, but really sort of allowing me to cut a path for myself. I'm in the car with him going up to Connecticut to meet my friend Mark to go to New York City. And literally the deal was Mark's mother knew some nuns that stayed, that lived, I mean, actually, I think was friends with one that were in a convent by the George Washington Bridge, as I remember it. We were going to stay there, the two of us, like on our own. And then I think my parents might have thought, this is okay, they're with nuns, how much trouble can they get into? They'll keep an eye on them. When we got there, these nuns literally said, okay, it was like a convent, we each had a little room. They said, here's the front door key, one for each of you. That door locks at one o'clock. You can't get back. Just, we'll see you. You're, well, run over, you know, we'll see you, but you have to be back here at one o'clock. We need to see you in the morning. So for the next like six days, me and my friend Mark literally just tore around the city, 16-year-olds. We went to see my first two Broadway shows, Promises, Promises, oh. and um, 1776 on oh, two first. Now, here's the thing, though, about that. Oh, my God. When I look at those old programs, which I kept, what was also playing was Follies and oh, Company. Oh, my God. So, again, oh my God. there's a part of me that literally goes, my 16-year-old self didn't realize that's what I really wanted to see. But I went to see right. Promises in 1776, which were great. And I can yeah. I very distinctly remember the end of 1776, you know, where that scrim comes down in front of all the Congressional Congress. And then the um, Declaration of Independence comes across it. It's a very moving theatrical moment. 
which I truly can remember, and I don't think it affected Mark this way because he was straight, um, truly knocked me out. It was like, mm. oh my God, I'm getting this. They're telling me three things here. They're showing me history. They're showing me how these men are frozen in time, all this crazy action I just saw. And they're saying all of this goes together to create one experience. I sort of got that mm. and loved it. Mm. Um, that was that was the beginning of my trip to New York. You know, we saw yeah. Johnny Carson. We got in a little trouble. <laughs> oh, wow. you know, we, we you know we went down to Wall Street. We you know did all the things that yeah. sixteen year old two sixteen year old boys are going to do who are on their own <laughs> for the <laughs> first time in, in, my, in, in New York I, City. I I went back and my mother said, "Well, how was New York?" And it was like it was great. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the nuns let us do anything we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> So now that you're starting to pound the pavement as an actor, so let me ask you, what do you remember what your go-to audition song was? Oh God. Um, well, here's the deal. About you know, in CCM, I mean at CCM, I was a musical theater major, and that's a great school, but it was not mm. the school then that it is now. Sure. Um, I think it was beginning to find its, you know, really kind of find itself. So, you know, I did productions there. Um, I worked, I got a job as a waiter there at a very trendy restaurant. The last two years I was there, a place called In Cahoots that literally I spent a lot of time at because I wanted to make as much money as I could. Mm. I literally, I had a bank account at Chase Bank on 73rd Street and I would send them checks because that was my stash for my, when I was going to move to New York. <laughs> and I, then I was making, you know, when I, in that waiter job. And when I first moved to New York, and I love this, I hadn't thought about this in a while. I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm here because on 73rd Street and Broadway at that Chase Brands one day, I saw Harvey Evans with his boyfriend, I think at the time, Tony Stevens. Oh and I God. didn't know Tony, but I knew Harvey from After Dark. You know, the, the magazine. Yes, we talked to him about it. We actually yeah, talked to him about it. He'd been on the cover. You know, I mean, so I knew who Harvey was. I hadn't really seen him in anything. I think maybe I saw him in Dames at Sea on TV or something. But um, but I remember seeing, and I, I've told Harvey the story, and he just sort of like, that girl. <laughs> but, literally, <laughs> but literally, but, but literally I, told, I saw Harvey, and I literally got this chill and went, oh, my God. I'm in New York, and I know that guy, and he lives where I live. <laughs> it, totally. it, it, it was like one of the, like my first week here. Anyway, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I, love that. You know I, I did summer stock in college in a place called. Where did you Warsaw. do? Where did you? Oh yeah, I worked at uh, Warsaw um, Wagon Wheel Playhouse in Warsaw, Indiana. That I'm yes. sure you've spoken to lots of folks who have worked there. I yes. was there with Jimmy Walton and Bill Nolte and Mike Mike McCormick was there and then uh, Mike Rothar. There were some women too, um, but you know, <laughs> yeah. people. You know, we did. Uh, what do we do? Um, Minnie's Boys and Brigadoon and No No Nanette. And then the following year, I did. Um, I went to Grand Lake to a place, Colorado, to a place called The Troop, mm. and did Cliff and Cabaret. And mm. Believe it or not, you know Sky Masterson and Guys and Dolls. And yes. Just to make a just to make a complete the old actor in the Fantastics. The <laughs> old actor. <laughs> the old actor. The old nineteen-year-old actor. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then came to New York. And, you know, even though I'd been a musical theater major, I kind of fancied myself wanting to be, quote unquote, more of a serious actor. Mm. So I went for two years. I studied with Austin Pendleton at HB, oh, yeah. um, you know, in that basement uh, studio down there. And yeah. 
then for another year with Ray Allen, uh, so, you know, R.A.E., the, the actress. Mm-hmm. And then finally, for like two years or so with Terry Schreiber. Um, oh, a lot oh, of scene right. study work. I mean, the great thing mm-hmm. about Terry, there are some folks from those classes that um, I remember. And, you know, uh, but Julie Halston was in my Terry Schreiber <laughs> acting class. And although we never worked together on a scene, I remember her distinctly because she always showed up in what I didn't really, I mean, if you know her story, in her Wall Street drag. This is before she even met Charles, I think. This is literally when she was working on Wall Street. And we're all sitting there sort of in our T-shirt and jeans and sort of coming from whatever we were doing that day. And Julie would pull in at whatever it was, 5.30, 6 o'clock, you know, in sort of that 1980s, you know, Wall Street gig. At any rate, Julie had a good about that, too. So... (laughs) That's it. And then, and then I did begin to work a little, you know, I, I, um, I went down to, I did some dinner theater work. I did some regional theater work, um, a production of a Christmas Carol up here in Albany, uh, near at Coho's Music Hall. Oh yeah. Um, near where I am right now, where we're talking from, because I have a house outside of Hudson. Um, and you know, did the, you know, the under fives and things on the soaps and then did some off, we're off, off, off Broadway showcase of a play called Breeders. And then right about then, I got a job. This is, again, maybe 81, 82. I'd moved to the city in 76. And I'd had these jobs. I was waitering a little bit, you know, cleaning apartments and screwing around. And I got a job at a literary agency because somebody who had been in that production of Breeders, which, like, moved from a showcase to a, like, mini contract, whatever, they need, uh, the agent, a guy named Ron Bernstein, uh, who's still around and uh, went to LA and you know does a lot of work. Needed um, sort of like an office cleaner assistant. So I was between things and I took the job. I got, got the I took the job and began to work with Ron. And Ron went away for two weeks or a month maybe in the summer. And in my going to take messages and clean the office and check on things, I just decided and took it upon myself that I would read some of the manuscripts on his desk. Sort of inappropriate, but I did. <laughs> and when I got back, he probably noticed that they'd been moved or something. And he said, "Did you? Were you moving?" And I was. I said, "Yeah, I, I read those." And he said, "Well, what did you think?" And I just went, "Well, and this one, this one, and this one, this one." He said, "Well, do you, do you want to do this?" <laughs> so I began to do coverage for him. He began to say, "You know what? And I'll pay you twenty five dollars, you know, for something, whatever." So I began to do coverage for Ron, which got me started writing. Interestingly, mm. Ron at that time represented Larry Kramer, who had just written a book called Faggots, which was kind of uh, a notorious novel that was, um, you know, got a lot of of press and attention. And then there was another novel called Dancer from the Dance by Eric Garber. Uh, No, I'm sorry, uh, Andrew Holleran. His real name is Eric Garber. Um, And Dancer from the Dance remains one of my favorite books, but the two books were particularly the bookend story of the late 70s sort of gay experience. And I, honest to God, I've told mm-hmm. friends of mine, you want to, if you want to know what that time was like before HIV AIDS, really right. easily, read Dancer, which is this beautiful sort of lyrical story of Fire Island and being in the city then, and then Larry's Faggots, which is just like a raw, scathing look at it. And you will really, really get it. So Ron was, Ron was representing them. Um, yeah. I also began... Whew. Um, to freelance, I, to 
freelance write. I mean, people always had said that I wrote a good letter. And um, mm -hmm. I, I, so, and to make a long story short, I'd done a catering job where a, a local fireman was shucking clams on the beach in the Hamptons. He was gorgeous. To make a long story short, shorter, one of the other cater waiters was like a model. He brought the kid in, the guy in, you know, to his agent. Uh, the guy landed the first Calvin Klein's gene model. His name was Tom Fleming. Oh, um, wow. You can look him up. T-H-O-M. T-H-O-M Fleming. He, he began that for whole Calvin Klein's gene thing. Right. Um, Scott, the model who brought, actually became his agent and was telling me this story. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a People magazine story. So I right. interviewed Scott. I interviewed Tom. I, inter you know, I interviewed somebody and wrote this story. And sort of having no clue, I was still work, working for Ron Bernstein, threw it at the Time Life building. Like, literally dropped it up there like People Magazine editor. <laughs> <laughs> An idiot. And believe it or not, my phone rang, you know, like a week what? or two later. And it was some lower editor at People Magazine, very nice woman. I remember an African-American woman. I can't remember her name. She said, is this Tom Viola? Yes. Um, she said, look, we have your story. She said, we can't use it as a story. We don't, you know, we don't work with freelance writers like this, but we'd like to use it as research for what we call our lookout column. And Tom fits that perfectly. Um, and we can give you, you know, $175. And I thought, mm, great. She said, do you want to come up and you have to sign something? So I went up there. It was lunchtime and she just must have been bored and, you know, whatever. She literally sat me down. She said, by the way, this is good. But t come over here. This is your lead. This is really how you want to work a quote into this. You've ended it twice. <laughs> I mean, she literally gave me a lesson in how to write a puff piece. You know, uh, you know how wow. to write a, an article. And uh, they bought it. It appeared. Well, I felt, oh, my God, I'm golden. I can do this. So the yeah. next thing I thought, what can I, what do I know? What do I know? Like I knew Tom. So I thought understudies. Um, friends of mine, Ray Gill was understudying, God bless Ray, who's passed away, was understudying Kevin Klein in um, Pirates of Penzance, and I, I forget who else. So I thought I'd do a story on understudies and standbys, and I would explain the difference, and surely, you know, um, I, and in my own head, I'll do it for Playbill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I began to interview these various friends of mine who I knew, a couple people that they put me in touch with, and then and just then, on your own, just on, on your own, own, just on your own just tenacity. Yeah, yep. nobody, yep. nobody said yep. you do this. Yep. And then I decided I needed to meet, talk to somebody who was a standby as opposed to an understudy. And I somehow centered or got a contract or something with Louise Troy, who was standing by for Lauren Bacall in a must probably was Woman of the Year, maybe I'm not sure, but yeah. what, Lauren yeah. Bacall. So I yeah, left a note backstage. I left a note backstage with, for Louise saying, Louise Ray, this hi, this is my mate's Tom Viola. I'm writing an article for Playbill. Again, and I, when I did this kind of shit, it wasn't like I was being devious. I just figured, yeah, in my head, I'm writing this article for Playbill. Yes. So would you talk to me? My phone rings two mornings later. I'm literally in bed. It's like 10 in the morning. And I pick it up and I hear, is this Tom Viola? I went, yes. Well, this is Joan Alleman from Playbill, and you're not writing an article for us. What are you doing calling Louise, writing Louise Troy, leaving her a message and saying you're writing an article for us? We don't know who you are. So she like read me the riot act. And I was just kind of like, oh. So I left another note for Louise apologizing, figuring I'd gotten her in trouble. 
I put my phone number on it. She called me back and she said, I'll talk to you. I don't care. <laughs> so, so literally, I interviewed her and then wrote this article. I wrote Playbill again. I mean, now Phil Bush is one of my best, a good friends. So, I mean, <laughs> but, and I've told Phil this story. I, Playbill, you know, called or wrote me back and said, we're still not interested in your fucking story. Um, so, <laughs> but what I, what I did was I kind of threw it at the Soho News. Somehow I knew a guy named Dan, um, Don Shuey down there, who was like their theory, wow. theater editor. Well, they published it. Holy shit. I mean, they, <laughs> my language is getting worse as time goes on. They, but they, they published perfect. it. They published it. And it sort of was like, oh, my God. I mean, the Soho News, if you don't know, yeah. if you don't know, it was like a rival of the Village Voice and sold on newsstands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. real press agents wanted to, pre you know, place real stories in there. Right. Um, and then somehow, because I rode American Airlines a lot back and forth to like Pittsburgh or Cincinnati when I was in school and I read the magazine and the airline, I knew there was an in-flight magazine. So I went to the back. I had taken one. So I went to the back of the magazine and I saw it was in Fort Worth, Texas, where Dallas-Fort Worth uh -huh. where it was published. And I sort of did the same thing. American Airlines in-flight, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport editor. <laughs> What an idiot. And and I just sent it. And um, like a couple weeks later, I get this, I guess it was a call or a letter. Uh, maybe it was actually a letter with a contract. They said, we liked your article um, and we want to publish it and we'll give you $500. And it was like, <laughs> fuck, I'll take this. Sure. Yeah, five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that was sort of the beginning of my freelance pen for hire career. And then... Just to give my, get a glimpse of the future, and then we really can start talking about you know what my life's really about. Um, I was doing an article for, I think it was maybe Horizon Magazine, which was like a general interest magazine. They don't, don't exist anymore. And George mm -hmm. C. Scott was doing a new production for the for Hallmark, I think on CBS or something, of The Christmas Carol. And one of these press agents who had seen my other sort of celebrity pieces and figured, oh, he's safe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> called and said, Would you, if I can, you know, I, I want, um, do you think you could place an article on George? And I did. So I met Mr. Scott down between rehearsals or in, during rehearsal for Design for Living at Circle in the Square. He was directing, I think it was Raul Julia and, um, uh, oh God, I can't remember. I can't remember, but I met him there. was in it. Yes, exactly. And I, uh, from the, from uh, Unmarried Woman, please, what's wrong with Oh, uh, Jill Clayburgh. Jill Clayburgh, I think. There you go. At any rate, um, I was very intimidated about meeting George. I really thought, you know, you know, as opposed to, in this case, <laughs> Piazadora, who I'd also done. Um, but George could not have been nicer, actually. Um, he reminded me of that, my dad. They, so I kind of like just went into like, how can you make dad happy mode in terms of talking mm -hmm. to them? You know, you know, mm -hmm. you want dad to be proud of you. Um, and he, I, I, and, be, and I knew that he talked about Colleen, you know, they were no longer married, but he talked about his, you know, Colleen and how much is her work. So I thought, oh, I should talk to Colleen. So I, I had heard that she was president at Actors' Equity. So I did the same thing. I called Equity and I said, do you think it would be possible that I could talk? I'm writing an article on George C. Scott that I could talk to Colleen Doris. And I talked to her assistant at the time, Ann Brownstone. Next thing I knew, Ann calls me and says, can you talk to Colleen right now? She's happy to talk to you. She's got like 20 minutes. 
So I, you know, I get my tape recorder and I'm, I, I talk to Colleen about George. Now, meanwhile, in the rest of this story, an hour from now, you'll realize why Colleen was so important. The last thing Colleen said to me as we were hanging up from this very, you know, puffy interview about George, she said, and this really, um, now, it just really moves me. Uh, she said, darling, be good to him. And it just, <clears throat> it wow. just completely, in that moment, like, yeah. like the universe, it opened up and said, this is your future. I'm just going to give you a little glimpse with this woman. Mm -hmm. Showed me who she was yeah. as to why she would become God. Um, so important in my life and to what would become my life, Broadway carries equity fights AIDS. I'm so glad you bring up her name and, and, and invest yeah, and, and oh let us and our listeners hear so much because we don't talk about her enough on our podcast. Oh, I, so I'm so I glad will. that we can have this insight. And yeah. that might have been like maybe oh, really? 84, I think, when that happened. Uh -huh. And then I got, I, I through a friend, I got a job, a pen for hire thing, writing like a staff manual, which was just ridiculous for equity and the welcome to <laughs> equity pamphlets and the oh, equity benefits and an eight week job that, you know, this again, sort of a pen for hire job turned yeah. into a year because they kept giving me things to do that weren't contractual. I mean, everything from the Christmas party to um, just, I mean, writing letters for people or whatever. I clearly, somewhere along the line, realized I'd stopped going to auditions, so I'm no longer an actor, and it doesn't really bother me. I loved mm -hmm. rehearsing and the, and the family and performance. I was not, auditioning was not my strong suit, and you have to love to audition to work. And yeah. it, um, I, it, it just really, it tripped me up. I, I had a hard time, and I, as Rob said, I think at that time I was also, you know, losing my hair. So I, I would walk into a room and think that's what they're looking at rather than mm. doing what I do and being who I am. As a writer, that never tripped me up. It yep. was like, you know what? Read the words. Those words, my, my ideas have nothing to do with what you think I look like. Um, and that yeah. sort of, I zoomed right over that impediment that I had as an actor at an audition. Yeah. So, um, that's and that's, 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 that's more, you know, that's for therapy. Anyway. So, um, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> we, there you go. That's, we all get it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. it. So that led me, that led me to Actors' Equity. So finally, um, from 1954, we are now up no. to 1988. <laughs> this is, this is what, no, 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 this is exactly what we wanted. So thank you for yeah. that. So Tom, you're you're right there as the plague is yeah. starting. Is starting. Uh, I, I would like to ask you if it's okay. Sure. Do, you, do you remember the first? No, absolutely. Person? I can tell you. I mean, I can tell you. I mean, what you have to realize is I moved to town in '76. You know, I'm a so I'm a randy like you know 20 year old. Yep. So I was around. You know, for those years of the free for all, if you will. And and yep. and and while I you know I I don't mean to make it sound salacious, but or or nasty or any of that. But you know, you're you're being thrown into the party. You know, yep. and you're 20 years old. So what's not to like? Um, mm -hmm. but I, you know, and I can very distinctly remember on J July 3rd, 1981, I'm at breakfast with my boyfriend, a good friend of ours and a woman friend of ours. Cause we all, my, I was living with my boyfriend, Bob at the time. Um, and we were all at breakfast and we like, we buy the papers and, you know, share them and move, switch them around. And somebody said, look at this. And again, it was in the paper. Look at this little column whatever it said, 57 homosexuals, because at the time, the New York Times would not even write the word gay. 
They, it was in their style section. That didn't come for like 10 years that you could actually use the word gay to describe homosexual men. 41 or whatever homosexuals uh, die of a rare cancer. And I remember we all sort of sat there and went, oh my God, what the, what the hell is... I mean, and then we just moved on to the next article. But two incidences that really typify my experience of, of how that grew. If that's 81, I want to say by 82 or 3, you know, my friends were people who wanted to be actors and other cater waiters and folks. I mean, I really wasn't part of that village scene, you know, of men a generation older than me. Um, mm-hmm. Although we certainly all, you know, dabbled if someone was, you know, buying dinner. But, um, but I remember walking up Broadway one day and I see a friend of mine who was a dancer, a, a, a guy named Richard Christopher. Handsome, handsome guy. I'd known him, I think, from, I forget, he was in a good news, maybe good news. At any rate, I saw him coming towards me and I could tell he didn't look good. He did not look good. And I could see that he saw me, and we did that thing where, where, where you decide not to acknowledge each other. We walked by each other, like by unspoken mutual agreement. And I knew that that's because Richard did not want to talk about what was going on with him. And it really kind of shook me to my core that, oh my God, this isn't those other guys. And then... And this is the story, I've told this story before. In 80, I think it was 84, I went to brunch at Dobson's on Columbus Avenue on a Sunday, like a big round eight, you know, eight top, we call them. It was me and other, you know, other act. Ray Gill was there, a musical director, Scott Oakley, his boyfriend, Richard DeFabies, who understudied Harvey and um, Torch Song, um, and, you know, myself and all folks in the sort of in the business are aspiring. And we're all talking about this 1984, how this really wasn't about us. You know, it was guys who partied harder. It was guys who fucked around more out on the island. It was guys who were older than us. It wasn't us. It wasn't us. Well, that's 1984. By 1994, four of those guys were dead. And two of them, including myself, were HIV positive. Um, and that really is the all the story you need about how HIV and AIDS ripped through the community. When I go to Broadway Bears rehearsals and talk to all these young hot little you know dancers and all these dancers about what we do and why we're glad that they're you know giving their time and their energy and their souls to us and helping us out and and I talk a little bit about you know those days you know now you know. 30 years ago, for God's sake. Um, I, you know, I, I, I do, I tell them, you really, you really can't imagine. I mean, it was like being in a foxhole with, with all, your, all your friends and you're all like having to whack them all. You're all like having to stick your head up and you have no idea whose head's going to get blown off and blown off right next to you possibly. Um, so it, yeah, it, those, were t- those were rough Rough times, sad times. Um, and I mean, I, you know, we all of us of my generation and older, certainly, and, and younger, you know, have address books that are have you know out of a hundred names in an address book, 
40 of them are crossed out or more um, in different inks as time goes by. So, so at that time, you know, at that time I was working at equity, I'd gotten, um, you know, I, I'd been hired to do that job that lasted for a year. <laughs> and then they put me on staff as special projects coordinator to like do all sorts of things sort of for the senior staff there. And one of the things that I was doing was helping to, pr was producing their 75th anniversary events for November of 88. Mm -hmm. which were to benefit this fledgling committee called Equity Fights AIDS, um, which was founded by a number of counselors in the Equity Council. And all, all these equity committees usually have a staffer who do, frankly, do the work. You know, the counselors have the idea and the directions and then the staffers sort of. So the, I became the staffer for the Equity Fights AIDS committee just in a time of my life where I was um, looking to sort of clean up my act, um, find something to connect to. It seemed, as I look back on it, to pull together, you know, my writing experience, the, my, my liking, being able to speak to people, whatever I carried with me as an actor, my little bit of activism, everything, everything that I had done sort of without direction, like a magnifying glass went over it. And this light of much more intense heat went right to that. Um, and at that time, going back to Colleen's, um, you know, early, early interview, I'd gotten mm -hmm. to know Colleen a little bit um, through doing this work for the um, 75th anniversary event because it involved her and the, and the executive director, Alan Eisenberg, and others. And I'd worked with her a bunch, and she wasn't very fond of her assistant at that time. And my understanding, as I've been told, they wanted her to run for another term in 88. <laughs> and I, 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 have, I hesitate to say this because it sounds like pompous. Patrick Quinn told me that Colleen said, I'll do it, but only if you get me Viola as, to, as my assistant. <clears throat> and it, <clears throat> it changed my life. Because <clears throat> Colleen really wanted this Equity Fights AIDS and Broadway Cares that was working across the street. More about that in a minute to really take root in the theater. I mean, Colleen understood emotionally what was happening and that the union and the theater community needed to do something about it for these, for these, for these men and women who were losing their jobs, being thrown out of their apartments, being told by church and state that they were evil, being reading in the paper that they should be quarantined or tattooed. Um, she got how wrong that was. And not in some statesman-like way, she got it in her heart. And she really, really sort of both directly and tacitly said to me, just run with this, just do this. Maybe she sensed that finally I was all this lost that I'd been, had found a, you know, a nest. And she just said, go, do it. I, you know, we have other things, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out how to make this work. I remember Alan Eisenberg, who was, was the executive secretary for like 25 years at Equity, and he was the executive yeah. secretary when I was there, executive director uh, when I was there. And I worked a little bit for Alan. I wrote letters for him, and you know whatever he needed to do, I did. And I remember saying to Colleen, as this was getting started, um, I said, Colleen, um, what about Alan? I mean, this is a lot of time. And, I mean, and she looked at me and she, across her desk, and she said, you just do whatever needs to be done. I will take care of Alan. <laughs> and, and I and she did, and but I have to say, Alan proved to be one of my a mentor and one of my best friends in terms of 
men, you know, people I've worked with that I really admire and looked up to. The two of them together made that happen. Um, but I don't think Alan would have like parted the the way like like Colleen no. did necessarily. So long story short, Broadway Cares founded in '88. Equity Fights AIDS founded in '88 separately. We merged in 1992 um, because. You know, we'd really kind of really outgrown sort of working on that 16th floor at Actors' Equity and in conference rooms and outside of Colleen's office and in my small office. And, uh, and, yeah, and and everybody, frankly, thought, I think, that we were merged. I mean, it was it was a simple merger, as those go, because I think people just assumed that we were all in this, doing this together. And it was just about that time that uh, Broadway Cares which was a separate five one smaller, you know, hired Roger McFarlane as their director, executive director. Roger had just come off of being the executive, the first executive director of GMHC. He was very, very much the activist and prominent. Um, I think Roger just maybe looked at this as like a place, a desk to land and, and a, you know, and he, he sensed that sort of, contrariness between the two organizations. And he called me and he met me for lunch and he said, look, we're just gonna let these folks who are a little sort of being, you know, pissy about this, we're just gonna let them do, you know, whatever they need to do. We can do the work. There's too much that needs to be done. And let's, and people will either get on board or they'll fall away. And he was right. Hello, this is Betty Davis. Not the young one, the old one. I've been on Matches.com looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys at Behind the Curtain? Go to Patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. And do it before you're 122 years old. That's Patreon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wanted to ask you, Tom... When this first started coming up in equity, were there any members that said, you know, this is something we're not supposed, we, we don't do this, we don't go? No, I, you know what, no one's ever, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't know that anybody's ever asked me. I, I don't really remember any, I mean, there were people who maybe didn't step up necessarily, but I don't think there was anybody that I can, then somebody will prove me wrong, but I don't remember personally experiencing anyone sort of looking 
to knock it over or say this shouldn't be done. I mean, Colleen was a formidable presence, and yeah. she lent her name to something like that and her feelings. You know, again, I think people who might not have been interested or thought, oh, what? why is this something that I should care about, at least kept their mouths shut. Was there ever any attempt to get any of the other stage unions involved or to get SAG or AFTRA? In- no, well, I mean, in the work that we did, I mean, of course, you know, even in very fledgling versions of our events, we worked with um, 802 and IOTSE and mm-hmm. Front of House and Wardrobe, all those folks. And, you know, again, we began doing this so incrementally and so small. I mean, as I said to people, you know, we were doing bake sales at Cats, um, yeah. you know, in four tables outside the, outside the stage door of, you know, a, a chorus line. But, but um, we learned how to negotiate, not even negotiate, navigate all of those permissions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, there was a part of me that always probably still does operates as some, sometimes it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> and, and, and you can do that in a way that's not nasty or, or, or sneak, you know, and, and if you prove that, you know, you can do good work and you really didn't mean wrong, <laughs> um, you can build a career. <laughs> I guess, um, you know, by the time we merged, we had maybe raised between the two organizations, I don't know the figures here in front of me, probably Equity Fights Aids had raised like $2.3 million. And I think Broadway Cares had raised like a million something. We were actually, Broadway Cares had the better name, without a doubt. Equity Fights Aids had more of the engine of community support. Yeah. Um, but everything that we do now started sort of very small. You know, brought the first Broadway Bears was... Jerry Mitchell and six guys dancing on the bars. It's the bar. It's flash for Broadway cares. You know, the first flea market was done by all the equity folks with a few tables and Schubert alley outside the stage door of a chorus line. Um, the Easter bonnet competition wasn't even done for Broadway cares or none of us existed when it first started in 86 in the basement of the palace theater, where they were putting like dollars in, you know, Mason jars for the hat they loved the most. Um, you know, that was done, I think, for what was called the National AIDS Network. So by the time we were founded and the Easter Bonnet competition moved upstairs to actually be a little bit of a show between performances at Lacage, then it was done for Broadway Cares. <clears throat> Gypsy of the Year, which is now Red Bucket Follies. Roger and I wanted to do a, something in the fall like Easter Bonnet that would involve the show's fundraising. And we came up with this idea and it was done. We, we shared that. Um, I sort of produced it from equity, but Broadway Cares was the bank. Mm. Um, and then they, so, so there was a lot of that overlapping. And when we merged, we merged the two, the missions of both organizations. Equity Fights AIDS funded strictly at that time, the HIV AIDS initiative of the Actors Fund, which they had just been created about the time that we did, where the Actors Fund realized they had to respond to this incredible need and cry for help for folks with all sorts of issues, rent, insurance, everything. Um, It really, I mean, truly, the AIDS epidemic changed, morphed the actors from from a charity to a social service organization. Mm. At the same time, Broadway Cares was funding other AIDS service organizations 
um, that became actually our na- now our national grants program. So when we merged, we continued to do both. When you first started working with Equity Fight Aids, what did you feel? I mean, it's almost like you have to prioritize all these different tragedies. What yeah. exactly was the first thing that you said, okay, the people need this? Is it access well, to hospitals? Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly enough, it very much informed who we are today. We don't provide the services. Mm-hmm. What we did, we were over there at Equity Fights AIDS, in this case, or Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, raising as much money as we could and in as many ways as we could and in ways that grew and expanded and changed, you know, mm-hmm. you know, especially the appeals that were done at the theater, that are still done at the theater. <clears throat> we raised the money and we granted it to the organizations doing the work on the ground. So the Actors Fund is the employee assistance program of the entertainment industry. We funded first the um, HIV AIDS initiative, and then in 1996, that began to expand with us beginning to fund the Phyllis Newman Women's Health Initiative. Hmm. Um, and really, the, the reason why we did that, and you know, it even goes back to my affection for Colleen, um, when the Actors Fund created the Women's Health, the Women's Health Initiative, Phyllis asked me, you know, we'd love to do an event, and how do we do that? And I just said, well, rather than sort of try and tell you how, why don't we produce it for you? This is Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. So we did, and that became Nothing Like a Dame, which we did for the next 10 years. But we also then, again, determined that if we were giving the Actors Fund $2 million a year, we should really, there's $500,000 here that we can give to the Women's Health Initiative, because the women in the community had been so instrumental in Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS finding its legs. I mean, mm-hmm. being able to exist at all. And probably at a time when a lot of people were telling the women in the community, this has nothing to do with you. Why are you right. bothered with this? We know that's not the case, but it would have been an easy out. So that was the first time we began to expand the mission, which now, whatever it is, um, you know, 24 years later, we fund the entire safety net of social services provided by the Actors Fund. The Women's Health, Phyllis Newman Women's Health Initiative, the Freedman Health Center, the Dancers Resource, Addiction and Recovery Services, Senior Services, Every Artist Insured. I mean, last year, I mean, in 2020, we awarded the Actors Fund over $11 million um, that literally helped everybody in the business around all variety of issues. So yeah. when I go backstage and ask people to sign posters, or make appeals or participate in an event, all of them are also helping themselves. It's not, I I truly believe that if we hadn't expanded the mission in 96, just as the medications were coming about, we we would no longer be here. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still, there's, believe me, there's, if if you're not insured, if you live in a red state where basically your governor, you know, is saying, please don't give us any Medicare, it may as well be 1988. If you don't have a primary Mm -hmm. physician, if you don't have access to those medications. So it's much different living in New York, Illinois, California. But um, Mm -hmm. yes, um, I mean, I'll say since 1988, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS has awarded the Actors Fund, I think it's about $118 million. Um, Yeah. And that's what you gotta know is that's new money. That's not money that came from the Ford Foundation or some very right, rich person. Right. I mean, some rich people. But I mean, that's money that would not exist except for how the theater community across the country, national tours, everybody came together to make that happen. So then at the same time, our national grants program took off. 
you know, what was initially maybe 50 organizations, you know, is now 473. And last year, you know, $6 million. It's all, you know, so it's, and, and a lot of those organizations have also expanded their missions. So that's particularly the food banks and the meal delivery programs. I mean, if you're delivering a meal, how do you go to apartment 4F to the person living with HIV AIDS and, and homebound and walk by the apartment 4G where someone with ALS lives and go down the elevator? Right. Um, yeah. You don't. You don't. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that, that national grants program is we've awarded about $122 million above that a million eighteen, you know, to all, you know, to those organizations over the years. And Tom, before you got involved with this, I have to ask, did you have any sort of uh, uh, political grassroots uh, experience or did you just, no. resist- I, I, I just, you know, as a kid, I love to be, <laughs> I love to be busy. I was always sort of, you know, I was always kind of, you know. They got your wish. Yeah, kind of tritzing around, you know. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, I, mean, I, I did. I mean, I, I was, I was, you know, I was sort of, yeah, you know, I, I did all that. I didn't play sports. I swam. You know, I, I, I team stuff scared me. I don't know why. I mean, it not scared me, but I just felt uncomfortable, I think, because I knew I was gay. And, you know, I was in the middle now of what, you know, the, the was there, whatever I mean all of that growing up that lots of folks have and so I you know I was in the I was like president of the class and stuff and you know talked a lot I guess um, <laughs> um but I, but I did I like to be busy I mean busy sort of kept me I think at that age and this is more therapy therapy issue from my feelings a little bit yep. that were uncomfortable yeah. that were really yep. uncomfortable what do you think that um you know now about this organization that you wished you had known when you were first starting it? That's, you know, that's a good question, but I'll tell you my, my answer might be a surprise. I think my, the success of Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, and to a lesser degree, my ability to work, continue to work, you know, to be a part of it, is that we learned, I sort of learned everything sort of when I needed it as we went. So in other words, there's not something that I know now that I think would have changed much of how we did something 20, 25 years ago. You know, I, mm. I much better understand all the union regulations around doing the Easter bonnet at the Minskoff Theater sure. than I did right. 20 years ago. So I don't make a mistake. You know, so I know how to behave with the crew. You know, I know, you know, the respect of, you know, I understand that better. And there were times that I sort of walked into that and learned by doing. Um, but no, I don't know. I mean, the only... The, to your question, occasionally I'll get calls from people, not right now, but before the shutdown, saying, oh, my God, we would love to do broad, a Broadway Bears. We would love to do a, like a Broadway Bears performance. And, you know, they've just seen down at Hammerstein Ballroom 200 dancers and 5,000 people coming into two performances and, 20, you know, 12 choreographers and 20 stagehands, not stagehands, just, uh, stage managers. And they want to do that. And that's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a mistake this way. I, I will tell them, look, set on a scale of one to ten, set your first Broadway Bears or whatever you're going to call it, because Jerry will not, we don't want you to call it Broadway Bears. You know, <laughs> let, let's call it Pittsburgh something. Great. <laughs> I, I, I can't say what just came into my mind. But at any rate, um, let's say you're going to do that. <laughs> set your goal at a four. Set your goal at a four. Do it at a club. 
do it at a bar, do it at a small theater, set your goal at a four, so that when you come in at a five, you're going to feel like a big success. There's going to be an energy to that. People are going to want to do it again. You're going to feel good about yourself and the help you're bringing. Because if you do that same performance and you set your goal at kind of an unreachable eight, it's going to feel a little disappointing. And the energy that's going to propel you to do it a second, third, fourth time, as you learn how to do it better, isn't is going to dissipate. So keep, there's a phrase that, Somebody taught me that I think about a lot. Keep it right-sized. You know what I mean? <laughs> and grow with it. Grow. Mm-hmm. Let, it let, let, let the experience move you into doing it bigger and better. That's, I, that's fantastic advice. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, you've, you've been able to do all of these different shows and programs that are all part of the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS fundraisers. I'm sure there was lots of magical moments while putting these <laughs> things are. together. Is there one specifically that for you was a pinch me moment? I, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Yeah, I, I, there's one that comes to mind immediately. And, and I mean, there's lots and there's mm-hmm. lots, lots, lots. Um, I'm just amazed constantly at sort of how people come together and share their energy and time and talent and resources and give us the benefit of the doubt and, I mean, all of that. And and I get, too, that they do that because we've proven that we, you know, I want Broadway Cares to be a resource for the community that helps people in times of crisis and trouble. Lifts them up a little bit. You know, we can't fix everything, but we can help. We can do more than nothing. Right. Um, But... All that is said, probably one of the most magical moments was when we did the Easter Bonnet competition for the first time at the New Amsterdam Theater, which I think was in, Lion King opened in what, I think 97, the fall of 97, which would have meant we would have done Easter Bonnet at the New Amsterdam in like April of 98. Mm -hmm. And theater's brand new. You know, no, we've never done an event there. We got permission from Disney, from Tom Schumacher, who's a great supporter and champion, and at the time, Peter Schneider. And they were going to allow us to do it on the set of the Lion, you know, the Lion King there. Lion King? Yeah, the Lion King. And um, somehow, again, this is like so much serendipity. I got a call from a guy named, oh, God, his name won't he, he Well, he won't know. He's passed away. But he was the head of what was called the Ziegfeld Club which was kind of waning, but was a club for all those ex-Zigfeld dancers, you know, after they retired, after, you know, where they could hang out and drink and tell stories and, you know, carry on with each other. He literally somehow got word that we were doing that. And he said, would you be interested in having a couple of the old Zigfeld girls come back? And I said, fuck, interested? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. It just seemed like a brilliant idea. So... Chris Catelli, who's now a Tony Award-winning choreographer at the time, had done a fabulous number the year before for us for Cats. And Michael Graziano and I just sort of centered on Chris. We liked Chris. His number was fat, smart. It was actually a tap dancing Jesus, which was kind of with all the with all the <laughs> with all the cats behind it. it was, I mean, it was really kind of perfect. At any rate, <laughs> at any rate, for that reason, we thought tap dancing Jesus is perfect for the Zigbo girls. <laughs> so. We asked Chris to create an opening number that would include five of those dancers who could, you know, were like in their 90s, like literally in their 90s. I remember Chris's dad built for us these large 
resume, there are photos of them like in 1914 or 1918 mm. that slid across the stage. They're like, you know, seven feet high. As they slid across the stage, those five lovely older old women are now standing there. The audience got it. Oh, lost their minds. Oh, I would. That... Lost their minds. And then the one in the middle, Doris Eaton Travis, the four other ladies were a little infirm. So they kind of you know took their bows and we had guys in tuxes who took them off the stage. Doris then began to dance. And again, the, the roof blew off the place. And Doris continued to appear in the opening number of Easter Bonnet competitions for the next 10 years until she was a hundred, <laughs> until she was 104. I mean, we couldn't stop. I mean, we would, oh, we had so many fabulous ways of including her. There was the time contact was running and we had Doris in a yellow dress for her entrance. <laughs> and she, she's, like shuff, she's like shuffling off the buffalo and then she walks off stage. And I forget who it was, some dancer, literally then a guy in a yellow dress flips across the stage. I mean, literally, it's like doing backflips across the stage. Again, the audience pees itself. Oh, um, God. And then the last time Doris did it, which I think must have been in, eighty, I guess, 2008, she was really infirm. But mm. God, she was so sweet. And I, I, the last couple of times, I used to just pray, Doris, I know it's a lot for you to come up here from you know Oklahoma, and I know you're not going to miss this. Please don't die up here. <laughs> Please, you know, don't don't do too much between the Monday and Tuesday just, performance because I this will just. Please don't. And that last one, she really, she was determined, but oh, we rode her out in an Easter basket. I mean, she really barely. I mean, she rode out in this basket. A little door opened. She stepped to the side, and she literally did a little bit of a shuffle, and just said, "Let's dance." And oh then walked off stage. Uh, we did Easter Bonnet again. This was at, I think by that time we were maybe at the Minskoff. Yeah, we were at the Minskoff because um, we moved with the Lion King. Mm -hmm. Doris came. She was sort of in that, she looked translucent almost. And like, like moonlight was hitting her. And I remember she was sitting in a chair before she made her entrance. And again, I was very concerned about her. But she got through it. People loved her. It's April. She went home. I got a call, I think it was like in May or June, soon after, from her nephew telling me that Doris had passed away. And he said, I told me how. <clears throat> She'd gone to the doctor like a couple weeks after doing the event. And she was sitting like on that exam table, you know, like in her little gown to be examined. And she, the nephew said she was talking about having just done the Easter Bonnet competition. And the doctor literally said, I'll be right back. Just holds, I'll be back in a second, Miss, Miss Travis. And he left the room. The nephew said Doris kind of sat back and slipped away. Oh, it's literally. It's poetic. It's poetic. I mean, it's, it's. It's it makes me cry now. Yeah. I mean, just to, to think yeah. that, anyway. Yeah, it's gorgeous. What? And that, that, that memory of that experience that you got to yeah, but give her that, for 10 years, she got to revisit her glory, you know? It, oh, yeah, and she was a pip. Oh, my God. She was, <laughs> she was sassy. I mean, she was very sassy. And of we got, there was one. She's a survivor. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's lots of moments like that. What a oh, gift. Really, what thank a you gift for sharing that with us so much. Yeah. Really, thank you. Tom, let me ask you a question. Um, and it's we don't have a crystal ball, so. <laughs> 
let's imagine that there was no plague and that oh. and that AIDS never had existed. Yeah. What do you think you would have done with your career? <laughs> oh my god. Um <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I wonder about that sometimes. I think maybe if I, if I hadn't been such a, you know, I started working at Actors' Equity when I was 34. So I, th- I think, and, you know, and, and again, in my late 20s, and I mean, I was, you know, freelance writing. I mean, I, I, I just, I didn't, I just couldn't sort of find a real direction. You know, I wonder sometimes yeah. why I didn't, why didn't I think? Why didn't I think I wanted to be a stage manager? You know, why didn't I sort of figure out what company managers do? That might have led to being a producer. You know, I mean, I mean, but those things just didn't seem to happen. So, I mean, if you want to get all, you know, university about it, if you will, I just have some sometimes think that this is what I was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, and and that part of that. Was even 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 included being the fuck up that I was, you know, at, at times, and you know, in terms of just you know, just stupid stupid stuff, you know. So you know that you need to sort of calm yourself down and get a, you know recover from. Mm. Um, so and I, you know, and that also led all of that led to the experience, you know, being able to respond to the experiences that I seem to resonate with. So yeah. I really have no idea. I'd hate to think that I would be the world's oldest, oldest cater waiter. No. That's, you know, but that possibly could be it, and that would be not pretty. No, I, you had been running the company. I don't think yeah. so. What was it so, like to get either the phone call or the email saying, we're going to give you the Tony honor for excellence? Uh, Charlotte St. Martin called me, actually. I was at my office at Equity, and the phone rang, and I knew, you know, Charlotte was on our board, and I knew, I Charlotte, you know, I knew Charlotte, Charlotte had been there a couple of years, and she, um, she just said, I have some really, uh, I sort of something like, I have some really good news, I think, for you. And I really, and, and, um, she said, you know, we'd like to give you the Tony honor. You and that year it was myself and <laughs> Mary and Seldes. And um, at any rate, she, she told me. And it kind of really. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, like right now, it kind of really made me quiet for a minute. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was great. And then and then really terrifying to think about um, even, you know, accepting it in that event they do the night before the Tony Awards. Um you know, and then they throw a little video about you in the, in the, um, during a commercial break. Yeah. But it was great. It was, it was, it was fabulous. And to think that I was actually mentioned in the same breath as Marion Seldes was kind of, yeah. kind of sweet. Yeah. That, that is, it's, it's, and, and a very well deserving oh, honor, yeah. just to, to say the least. Yeah. Well, Tom, we all, we always ask our, our guests one of the last questions, which is, you know, you've, you've lived this incredible life. You've done so much good in the world. Um, Let's imagine you can talk to your younger self who's just coming from Pennsylvania <clears throat> to New York to start sure. their career. What do you know now that you wished you had known then? What advice would that's, you pass on? That's a good question. It's, and, I, and the answer is really simple. And I learned it from Colleen. I think with my Catholic school upbringing a little bit and you know, just feeling like I needed to be a good boy and... What I learned from Colleen is that you don't need to be perfect to make a difference. Mm. 
I worked close enough with Colleen and we got to be friendly, very good friends. I worked with her on her memoir. You know, I was up at her house. I really could see that she was all over the place. She was scattered. She was hilarious. She was brilliantly talented. She helped. She was generous in a way to her own detriment. I mean, she was all over the place. I mean, and, you know, and but and she did a lot of stuff brilliantly and imperfectly. Short of being short of being an actress, everything else there was <laughs> there was always a wrinkle. Um, and what that taught me truly was what I just said: you don't yeah. have to be perfect to make a difference. Because somewhere along the line, I'd gotten it in my head that if I couldn't do it absolutely right, then probably there was no point in doing it, or or I I shouldn't right. do it. Yeah. So and. Learning, seeing, working with Colleen and seeing that completely freed me up. It's a very good lesson and one that I think we're all going to take with us. Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you and thank you in person oh for all the, the incredible work that you have done for oh, the community. Oh, you Rob and Kevin. You and, know, really. and for humanity, your work doesn't just extend, you know, it's not contained to Times Square. You have saved lives. You've given people opportunities that they never would have had if it wasn't for your your advocacy and your brilliance. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thanks, Rob. The fact of the matter is, somehow falling on this on this path saved my life. Yeah. So understand, and in turn saved many others. So Tom, thank you so much, uh, everyone. We'll put a link so you can donate um, to Broadway Cares Equity Fight AIDS uh, before the end of the year. Um, And let me tell you, that's Broadway Cares. One word, dot org, O-R-G, and you can go to the donate page or you can go to slash help 2020. Look at that, folks. Amazing. You can, you can do you. that. We'll even put it in the description for you. Everyone, please stay safe. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Thank you all so much. Till next time. Bye, Bye guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was baddie. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Patrick Flynn. What? Beth Amon. I hate this movie. Love Actually? Yes. Me too. But I also love it. Me too. But I hate it. You know what we should do? What? We should get a bunch of people together, split the movie into its 10 storylines, and then figure out this movie one story at a time. You mean people like Keith Powell and Jill Knox Powell from NBC's Connecting? Keith, why don't you show us with porn watching faces? And Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petri? I don't know. I think every Christmas story is a horror story. Do you think it would work? It actually inspired me to play 
plan my funeral. I dig the uh, brothel angle. Every time I think about the trailer, I'm like, I was misled. I love your use of the word shag, by the way. Can I mix your ashes with glitter? It's like eight half screenplays just put in a blender. I am positive I stayed with my ex an extra six months because we saw this in the theater. It will definitely work. What is Love Actually? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download. All episodes out November 27th. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.